Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. Today's episode is made possible by Tenants Cove Writers. It's a new writer's retreat and workshop that offers rustic and rural glamping in a multi-generational family home on a 150-acre nature preserve up in New Brunswick, Canada. It is happening this summer, August 7th through the 14th. The workshop will be led by Melissa Scholes-Young, author of the novel Hive, and Peter Von Zagazar, author of the memoir, The Looking Glass Brother. These are critically acclaimed authors who have run the gauntlet. On-site tuition plus room and board is $2,500, and there are only four spots available. This is a small retreat on a big piece of land, and participants can arrange a full manuscript review for an additional fee. For more information, go to TenantsCoveWriters.com. That's T-E-N-N-A-N-T-S CoveWriters.com. And join the retreat. Sign up. Go to Canada. Exist in nature and make your manuscript a reality. Hey, this is Steve Almond. I'm sitting in for Brad Listy. And today on the program, my guest is... Brad Listy, the host of the Other People podcast and author of the brilliant new novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. The way that I sometimes talk about it, as I say, like it was a clearing of the decks, you know? I think sometimes writers have books like this in their life where there's just stuff that you cannot avoid. And, And trust me, I tried to avoid it. I would have loved to have written something so far afield from all this, but every time I sat down, Uh, It was just kind of staring at me. Hey, this is Steve Allman. I am sitting in for Brad Listy, and I am feeling uh, already completely intimidated, jittery, slightly nauseous. There's some sweat happening, and I'm just thrilled to be that nervous because as I try to tell my students when we have a little reading, like, good, nerves are good. It means it's really important to you, so it's really important to me to do a good job. I don't think, I don't know if Brad has had a guest host on his own podcast. He's like the... uh, 
the Lou Gehrig podcast host. Just every week out, he is uh, he is in the chair. And now I am in the chair and I'm super psyched because I was completely enthralled by, captured by his brilliant novel, which is what we're going to talk about today. But I am also quite nervous. So if I start to sound skittish or scattered as I am right now, in fact, exhibit A, it's because I'm, I'm feeling nervous and intimidated to be hosting, but also thrilled. Today on the program, this will surprise none of you at this point, my guest is Brad Listy, the host of the Other People podcast and author of the new and terrifyingly brilliant and human and implicating novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. And I read this book once simply just to see what Brad was up to. I knew him as this intensely thoughtful podcast host. I knew that he was a writer. I'd seen some of his writing online, but a novel is a different beast altogether, as I can attest. And I just knew from the first paragraph that I was going to just enjoy this book and like get captured by it. And so I even want to, I just want to read the first paragraph. I want to explain why my, my gratitude uh, at encountering the, his voice on the page, which is actually quite similar to the voice you guys have come to know from the podcast. He's just, here it is. This is the beginning of Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. This book took 12 years to write. It started out as a novel and then it became a different novel and then it was another different novel and then it was an essay collection and then it was nothing for a while. And then it was a memoir, and then it became a novel again, and now it's whatever this is. During the time it took to write this book, I met my wife Franny, dated her, proposed to her, married her. We got a French bulldog and named him Walter. The global economy collapsed. Franny got pregnant and gave birth to a girl we named Alice. A close friend died of an accidental opiate overdose. I wrote a screenplay called Man of Letters, an absurd comedy about a 40-year-old spoken word poet who lives with his parents. It didn't sell. I produce 500 episodes of a podcast called Other People with Brad Listy, in which I talk at length with other writers. We suffered through five miscarriages. I co-wrote a sitcom that sold but was never made. I worked several different media jobs and referred to myself in public as a creative consultant. We finally conceived a second child, a little boy named Oscar Joy. And then six months after his birth, he was diagnosed with cerebral palsy and epilepsy heartbreak. Also, Walter choked on a bagel and died. This was years ago. Franny gave him the Heimlich and we rushed him to the vet, but he didn't make it. I, um, I'm always looking in a book, in a story. I'm always looking to be in conversation with what E.B. White calls in Charlotte's Web, a wise, true friend. I want to spend time with somebody whose mind and heart I recognize and admire and even feel endangered by, implicated by, on the page. And this opening reminded me so much of the opening of Vonnegut Slaughterhouse Five, in which he writes, I would hate to tell you what this lousy little book cost me in money and anxiety and time. What I love about these openings is that they announce the difficulty of the project and a certain humility before it, a sense of surrender. It is the absolute opposite of what I feel like I encounter and Brad writes about brilliantly in Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, which is the kind of pervasive creep of marketing, this perfected, airbrushed, utterly fraudulent version of our lives that we're running around marketing to one another. 
and that is completely at odds with the truth of how we know our lives to be, the essential existential condition of confusion, of doubt, of disappointment, of just trying to absorb the blows that are coming from unseen quarters and sometimes seen quarters. I also adore, crucially, that this opening does not hide the story. Part of the trick of a great narrator is that you have a sense that somebody is telling you the story and telling you up front, this is what this is about. This is what is on my mind and heart. I cannot stop telling you the truth about this. So many of my students, and me for that matter, and all my awful failed novels, spent all this time hiding the story, either because we haven't figured out the story, the thing that we've come to the page to say, or because we are so insecure about the worth of that story and whether it will be of interest to anyone that we wind up sort of withholding it as a way of trying to build suspense. It's really actually an expression of our anxiety that we don't know if it's any good, so we're going to hold it back and maybe the reader will want to guess what it is. So many of the decisions that I, I make when I'm struggling at the keyboard are just, they're born of insecurity. They're born of, look at me, am I good enough? Am I interesting enough? And what I sensed in Be Brief and Tell Them Everything was, was somebody maybe out of sheer exhaustion who just needed to tell the truth about the stuff that he had been living through and trying to understand it. When the narrator is not on duty, as they generally aren't in the culture, people are left in this state of what I call unproductive bewilderment. They don't know really what's going on. They cannot enter into the project of enlarging their moral imagination by entering the mind and heart of somebody else. They're just getting that cover story or they're getting a whole bunch of disparate stories that they cannot piece together. And this unproductive bewilderment is, uh, uh, I think, actually makes people pray to demagogues and ad men. It's kind of kill. It's actually killing the species. What I love about Be Brief and Tell Them Everything is that it is engaged in productive bewilderment. Brad is so eager to understand his inner life, to understand the events that are going on around him in his life, this swirl. I just read a list of everything you read about in the book. That's what I mean by he's not hiding the story. It's out front. I dealt with all of these losses. I dealt with fatherhood. I dealt with creative insecurity and failures in that realm. I dealt with trying to figure out how to write this book and what to call it once it was written. I dealt with terrible losses in trying to conceive of a child and the joy of having a second child and then the terrible anguish of that child having real medical problems that are terrifying every minute of his day. All of that is bewildering. And what the book says again and again, in fact, he has a conversation with his wife who sounds sharp as hell. And she says, you know, like, basically, what are you up to? And Brad's saying, I got to find my calling. That's our job is to find our calling. If we don't, our kids will pick up on it. They'll pick up on that yearning, that unrequited life that we're not quite leading. And it will do a number on them, which I could not believe more deeply. It's such a sharp point. I think about it often, but but I've never thought about it as clearly as that. He's so quick to the truth. So his wife says, you know, okay, so, you know, what's your calling? And he says, and I quote, I'm called to articulate my confusion. Want to fucking kiss him on the lips. I'm called to articulate my confusion. I was like, God damn it. Could we all just have a bumper sticker just prosthetically attached to the front of our eyeballs? So every time we blink, we see I'm called to articulate my confusion. 
It is the fucking truth. It is the polar opposite of psychopaths, of really broken people. Like uh, Tucker Carlson is top of mind because this there's you know a huge story in, in, in the New York Times about this milk-fed demagogue who's so smug and sure of everything and so obviously gross and date-rapey, this self-victimizing white dude who's had every advantage in the world and is still so weak and so needy and so in retreat from his inner life that all he can do is try to wring a little profit from the neck of shame, just terrify in this vampiric, abusive parent manner, poison the minds of sad, lonely people who are living in genuine bewilderment about their circumstances and just telling them over and over, you are under siege from brown people and poor people. When what they're really afraid of is their inner lives. That is the opposite of what great books do. That is the worst and most corrosive kind of narrator who's so moral, morally sure of themselves that they're trying to banish doubt and confusion and bewilderment from the masses. But they're not really trying to banish that doubt. They're just trying to redirect people to an external, fraudulent, made-up source of doubt and fear, turning them away from their inner lives where all the real action is, where they really need to deal with the truth of what they're living through. And a great book enters us into that engagement with productive bewilderment. The moments in life, whether they are completely imagined and they sort of take up the subconscious confusions of the author or as in Brad's novel, whether what we call autofiction, they are events that Brad has lived through and is trying to understand and make meaning out of not succeeding, trying, not, oh, here it is on Facebook. I've cracked the code, but I am trying to understand what these events mean. Brad and I are both people who were born into a lucky story. We're white dudes. We were born lucky. We were born on third. It is our job to try to understand our own experience and to try to, if to whatever extent, tell the truth about the places where we feel just lost, bereft. And what I love even more about Be Brief and Tell Them Everything is it's not all bad. It's not all loss and confusion and uh, I don't I don't know what to do and I don't know what I'm going to do. There are also these brief and transcendent moments of clarity and of absolute joy and beauty in the face of some stuff that as a, as a fellow parent and a fellow writer and fellow partner in a long marriage, I just thought, I don't know how I would deal with these situations because some of the stuff that Brad has been up against, I just haven't had to live through. And he's so un, unflinching in writing about those things. I don't even know if I would have the, I don't know what, the courage, I guess, to write about those things so directly. But it made me feel like if and when I reach a point and the places where I do recognize what he's talking about, being terribly worried about whether a child will make their way through the world, for instance, I feel like finally I have that wise, true friend. Finally, I have a book that I can pick up and read and turn to the pages that are already dog-eared in my copy and be able to say, I am not alone in this struggle. I am so freaking excited to talk with Brad about all of this. And uh, I, I think we will both be uh, kind of drunk with bewilderment by the end of it. Maybe you two as a listener will be drunk with bewilderment. I hope not. But I'm just super psyched to be in his chair and talking about his book today. 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So I want to welcome Brad into the podcast right now. Let's get him up on the horn. And it was a lot of trial and error, which the book cops to in the first paragraph. And it was also, if I'm remembering correctly, something that I picked up through the years from our shared hero, Kurt Vonnegut, mm. who advised that you should not be coy at the beginning of a story and you should let the reader know what the stakes are. And so I think it's a combination of that good advice and the creative exasperation that eventually became a theme of the book. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is a book that became about its own making. And you go through enough failed drafts and enough frustration trying to say what you want to say that eventually for me, it was like, okay, let me just drop my guard here. Let me listen to this good yeah. advice that I've had in my head rattling around for a long time, but it's so easy to forget. It's so easy for some reason for me anyway, to fail to remember and to yep. fail to execute. And, you know, it's not, it's not, a, uh, you know, it's not a big surprise with the benefit of hindsight that once I started that way, things began to roll. Right. And that was certainly the case with the final drafting of this book. I think it was a combination of that deep relief of like, oh, it, it's, it's happening. Like I'm not that I knew that it was going to be published or I have no, I had no, I had no expectations. Illusions. Yeah. No illusions or expectations around what would happen in the marketplace. It was just the sense of rel deep relief knowing that I wouldn't have to write it again. <laughs> uh, I finally was saying what I needed to say in, in, in a way that I felt solid about. Yep. Once you know what you want to say and how you're going to say it, you get to relax and the reader gets to relax. So much of what I've experienced in failed writing is I just am in this state of uneasiness because I don't know what to say. I don't know what the story is going to be. I don't know how to say it. So you get to relax. You said I failed to remember, but I would say you you actually achieved a state of surrender. That is, I don't know. 
it's big and it's confusing. And this thing's going to have to be about the confusion of how of the form it should even take. It, you sort of get, to me anyway, you get sick of fraudulence. You get sick of fronting. And it's kind of a form of surrender. And you then, then you are speaking from a place of greater truth and urgency because you just can't write anything else. You can't pretend that there's some artifice that you're going to build that's going to house the, the doubts and confusions. It's just those doubts and confusions. I love that. Now, I want to speak about the section and I, it's going to be annoying to you, but like I just dog-eared this thing because there are so many passages that I loved. And I just want to like give people a sense of the prose and um, this voice that I, I talked about a little bit in monologue, but I think it's worth just hearing more of it. You have a, an incredible, incredible riff where you talk about quitting Twitter and uh, <laughs> it's just so it's brilliant. Is this embarrassed? Is it just I'm just going to read a little bit. I'm sorry to embarrass you. I just got to do it. Embarrassed that I ever allowed a pack of sociopathic dweebs from Silicon Valley to manipulate my reality, to fuck with my dopamine levels, to monetize my personal information, replicating the details of my identity and selling them back to me as products and services. Embarrassed that the soulless growth hackers had me agitated for so long use their jiggered algorithms to keep me on the platform and undo my capacity to think, fuck this stupid bullshit, I said to myself as I lay there on the floor of the gym that morning, fuck all of it, fuck everyone, I quit, and I did. It didn't go back. It wasn't entirely easy either. Addictive tech is addictive on purpose and far more mainstream by an order of magnitude than any street drug in history. Almost everyone I know is dependent on it to some degree, whether they realize it or not. One of the greatest and most sinister feats of modern capitalism. And amazing to think of how quickly it happened. 10, 15 years. That was all it took. By then, they had most everybody, myself included, all of us walking around, dive bombing into our phones, lost inside our information silos, eyes glued to our screens, unable to tolerate even the smallest moments of inertia. Now, you know, that is like a, a love song to somebody who's like this, uh, for me anyway, somebody who feels that addiction along with you um, and is also raging against what it's doing to us, our capacities to morally imagine, to focus, to have sustained focus. But it's also to me interesting that you allowed yourself to be the frustrated preacher because this book is partly about, you know, um, Selby, your great instructor, right, uh, author of Last Exit to, to Brooklyn and Requiem for a Dream teaches you, calls you out and says, you're a frustrated preacher to you. And there is this part of you, Brad, that like me wants to, you're like the prophet, you know, you want to wail from the top of the mountain and say, we are lost. And this is the particular nature of how we're lost. But I want you to talk to me a little bit about how you balance that. Cause, cause you, you have moments where you go off like a preacher, but the most moving and, and they're nourishing and necessary. That's what you have come to the page to say. But the balance of the book is really much more tender and vulnerable. It's not about what's wrong with the world. It's about what's what's hurting inside you. Yeah, well, no, I, that's well said. And that's definitely something that I struggled with in previous iterations. And that's a delicate balancing act because I think most writers hear at one point or another how inadvisable it is to politic in writing or to use right. your characters as as puppets and to try to soapbox with them because the, the puppet strings reveal themselves in those moments and it can become like an authorial intrusion. The reader finds themselves going, oh, I'm getting lectured at here. Yeah. And so I think the way that I tried to hedge against that was to 
keep it confessional and keep it brief. You know, yeah. I don't stay in these places for long. And I think even when I'm railing against social media and calling it out, it's a diagnosis of myself as much as it is a diagnosis of right. the, the thing itself. And, you know, what I always try to say whenever I'm talking about my decision to quit social media is that I was an addict uh, or I am an addict. I guess we right. should speak in the present tense. I have yep. to cop to that. Like, it wasn't like uh, I was casually checking Twitter a couple times a day. I was checking Twitter like multiple times an hour, right. uh, looking at my phone. What's going on? Scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And, yeah. uh, you know, it just became this behavior that I could not unsee after a while. Like, wow, they really yeah. have me. And not only that, they own all this content. And not only that, they're using my data and selling it for cash. And not only that, uh, you know, I haven't really been reading books as much as I'd like to be. And, you know, the, on and on and on. And I'm not getting paid. <laughs> right. But they are. And I think maybe that was the thing that stuck in my craw the most was this idea that like, wow, I've made myself a willing slave to this company and I am working unpaid to enrich the people who run it mostly. Yeah. And that's a weird setup, you know, that really just flies in the face of like all of my core principles. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I mean, also you sort of think about, well, who designed this amazing technology that's going to save us all? And it was like people are insecure because they're not at the party. Well, I had a great conversation years ago with uh, an author named Jarrett Kobeck, who's a pal and who lives here in Los Angeles. And he wrote a book called I Hate the Internet, which became a kind of cult hit. And he made the very good point to me. It was something I hadn't really given deep thought to before that, you know, these platforms were largely invented by men. Well, it's interesting because you don't want to get into, in, into a place where you're sort of generalizing too much about the genders. Nobody's got a, a franchise on doubt and shame and the way we convert it into cruelty and, and in-group, out-group dynamics. But I agree that there's something particularly telling about the sort of the tech bro who is is a master of the computer and the code and the world that lives on the screen and probably less adept at dealing with what we remember from the analog world, which is how do you read people's gestures? How do you enter into a conversation and with with curiosity and connect with another human being in a way that isn't mediated by a screen and therefore run through some corporate loop of sponsors and you know dat your data sort of being being mined and so forth and that to me i i think it's not just that they're that they're men who are these con builders of these platforms but that they were insecure people yeah people who were trying to find a way to kind of if if i can't deal with the party in real life then let me drag it into this place where i'm the master of it and i'm going to profit by it yeah. Well, I mean, what was the earliest iteration of Facebook? It was like hot or not, right? right? That was what it was in its cradle. And, you know, it obviously became something quite different, you know, to where it is. Well, in the maybe it day. did and maybe it didn't. You know, maybe our version of hot is I will like for me, it's like I'll say this virtuous thing about the decline of our public morality. Am I hot? Yeah. Am I hot to you as a social justice warrior? So that's right. I think it's actually probably if you it, that's that proto beast is still there at the center of it. And, you know, as we know, it is. And, and I think be brief and everything. Tell them everything is all over this. That is turning our attention towards an ego need and away from our own experience. And what I, I think another way of saying what I love about the book is that 
you're honest about the way that we're wrestling with the attention that we're seeking from the world, in this case, the Twitter addiction, but you're also spending most of the book trying to find what you call these minor key moments of fear and desire, these flurries of spasmodic change, these absurd little fluctuations of mind, quiet agonies, ludicrous fantasies, my middle age motions towards austerity. Uh, I mean, that to me is like the project of the book. That's the listy method, is that you're trying to find in these small moments, uh, little changes, little revolutions of the mind and heart. And, you know, that to me is brilliant. That's what books are supposed to do. They're supposed to, the central danger is supposed to be that self-revelation. And there are so many of them in the book. It's like, it's like seeing somebody kind of running up against the hard truth of themselves over and over again. That's exactly what I was trying to do. And what I am trying to do in my lived, lived experience is trying to recognize when I'm lost in the static, which is so much of the time. And I think that the smartphone culture that we live in, the social media, you know, that's part of the smartphone culture, so many different things, television, all of it. Like there's so many different things vying for our attention and pulling us into the static. And it can be very easy to slide through your entire life, I think, or too much of it anyway, paying attention to things that really don't matter or just spending time just ingesting toxic bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I've, I've, spent a lot of my adult life, I, I hate to say, in that mode. I would hate to quantify it. It would terrify me, I think, if I could actually put a number on how many hours I've spent, you know, taking in hostilities and all of this kind of false bravado and all the posturing that you see on social that feels toxic. You know, you just have that kind of innate sense of like, wow, I feel worse now than I did when I started reading this, you know, even yeah. though even though maybe I might agree with the cause or something, there's something about it that just leaves you feeling a little ill. And I've done too much of that. Yeah. And lonely, really. It's like, it, it, you know, it's an addiction because it's something you hide and it's something that doesn't ever get fulfilled. You never reach that moment of saying, oh, I've had enough. Good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think one of the most destabilizing experiences, and I can only say this as a person imagining it because it has not happened for me. But I look at sometimes these people who have enormous followings and it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody who's traditionally famous. It could be somebody who's just good at performing themselves on social media and has amassed a following. Mm -hmm. And I watch what they say and they could say something pretty mundane, like, oh, this is what I had for breakfast or like, it's one o'clock or you know what I'm saying? Like whatever they right. say, but to have like the reciprocity of 6,000 retweets every time you utter anything or, you know, people just clapping basically every time you, you make a statement. I, I wonder sometimes like, what does that do to a person? And how does yeah. that make a person feel about social media deep down? Like yeah. I can understand the, the dopamine hit and the addiction and how it would be kind of nice and fun to have that much interactivity. But I also, I know personally, I would be going, why are they clapping? Like that would fuck yeah. with my head a little bit, I think. Yeah. And also it, it, you just know that you're engaged in it in a kind of ego need that isn't the thing that's going to lead to a deeper understanding. Those little moments of spasmodic change, as you call them, those are moments where you're trying to articulate your confusion, not where you're saying, yeah, I've, it's, it's hilariously entertaining that I ate thus and such for breakfast or that I threw out this sobriquet. Like, I think there's some part of us that has to know that is not real earned regard. That is 
my incidental observation being incidentally endorsed by other people. None of us is giving our full attention to this. We're not really making love. We're just grinding for a sec. Yeah. Um, and it, it, like what I love about the book is that there are moments uh, that are to me are just devastating where you really find in these small moments something so profound that's happening. You're paying attention. I just want to read one as a fellow parent because I thought it was so virtuosic and it's the it's the discussion you have with your daughter about death. I just want to read this little passage. As, as a father, my approach to spiritual matters has in consequence been almost fanatically hands-off, especially so after an early bungled attempt at explaining death to Alice. That's your daughter, your older child. The conversation happened when she was six and reeling from a trip to the Natural History Museum where the fate of woolly mammoths, saber-toothed tigers, and ground sloths had been presented in fossilized detail. The experience left her saddled with some heavy questions, and Franny, that's your wife, assigned me the task of delivering our response. That night, while tucking Alice in, I made efforts to explain the illusion of death as I understood it, not as a matter of total annihilation, but rather as a process of state change. I love this. I love your ambition, man. It's just so fucking awesomely misguided. Okay. As parental speeches go, it wasn't exactly a ringing success. Alice listened intently and seemed to understand my use of the cloud analogy, how a human life or any life was similar to that of a cloud manifesting for a time when conditions were sufficient and then taking on new forms as conditions inevitably changed. But what happens to who you are, she wanted to know. And will we all still see each other afterward? There are many times in this book, Brad, where I was like, oh, what a beautiful title that would be. Will we all still see each other afterward? Crushing and abundantly clear how the comforting dream of heaven had persisted through the ages. Far easier to explain death as a happy family reunion in Cloud City than as a dissipation of a cloud into acid rain. I thought it was such a nourishing, reassuring moment of parental and not even failure but just an attempt that goes awry because there's no right answer to that question of death to any of us, least of all a six-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you know, kids will do this to you. You know this. They'll ask you these questions. Yeah. And I think like reflexively, you, I feel a sense of deep responsibility, particularly because I was a child for whom the questions that I had, uh, you know, in the Catholicism of my youth were often not sufficiently answered in like CCD class or whatever, or in church itself. Like I was sitting there like with these questions and I couldn't, I, I was never satisfied or I was handed answers that scared me like, you know, hell and damnation and cardinal sins and all that stuff. And I didn't have the greatest Sunday school teacher is basically what I would say, especially as a, as a kid about the same age as Alice is in the book. Mm -hmm. And in consequence, as a parent, you know, I've tried to avoid certainty but i also i don't know it's like it's like wanting to navigate a line because i don't want to hand like nihilism over to my kids no not a good idea no none no of the parent, none of the parenting books are like nihilism a better approach <laughs> yeah like the void you know or and and the truth is <laughs> the truth is that i don't believe it i don't believe in an empty cruel cold universe um it might be i just don't know but i think that like scientifically when i look at the interconnectedness of phenomena and the flimsiness of what we consider to be our identities and our our personhood 
uh, when you start to kind of noodle with it, it comes apart and it comes apart in a way that is satisfying to me at the level of evidence and basic logic. And so I don't know, I'm persuaded at least that there's a lot more than meets the eye. I'm not a full materialist in my worldview. And I think what I'm trying to portray in the book is the struggle to language that without sounding too sure <laughs> in a way that's palatable to a child and failing inevitably. Right. You know, it's just really, really difficult to do. It's tough to make this stuff land. It, it, it is totally understandable to me with the benefit of these experiences, how parents could be like, yes, we'll all be together in heaven, you know, because right. Right. it ends the conversation and it makes your kid feel better. And it might even make you feel better. You know, it's part of the struggle of parenthood for me. I've had friends of mine be like, just say you don't know. And I do, but kids, uh, you know, it's worth noting that I think friends of mine who say this often don't have children. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, but you know, kids, you try it. kids yeah. will, yeah, you try it. And then your kid doubles down or your kid will, uh, what's the legal term, you know, when you cross examine, you know, there'll be like a cross examination after you've made your little speech and you know, it can, you can start to backpedal and it can get unwieldy at the level of language. So, you know, I actually thought it was really an elegant thing to say, um, you know, definitely heavy for a six year old, but like, there's a certain amount of respect you showed her. You didn't just take the easy route of saying, well, I don't know. Nobody really knows, which is what I say, which is true, but also not helpful. Um, or maybe it's saying to the child, um, you know, uh, I, I too am bewildered by this. I can't give you the, the assurance you want because like, how could you possibly, even your poor uh, Sunday school teacher, might be finding a religious myth or what we regard as religious myth. Maybe you and I will wind up down in hell and be like, oh, <laughs> shit, we fucked this up. <laughs> should, should, should have been a little more superstitious. Um, but I think it's an impossible dilemma. And that question that your daughter poses is the one that we all pose. Will we really actually lose one another? Will I no longer have a consciousness and therefore a consciousness that loves this other consciousness that is my father or my my mother or my brother. I mean, you know, that's, that is the, the reason that people make stories, maybe in some distended way. That's the reason that, that, that people want to get big followings, that they somehow believe that that will put the kibosh on or that I, that ultimate data that we have that datum, which is we're going to stop being alive. We're going to die. Our material, our bodies are going to disappear. And there's all this reaching after you see this, I'm sure with, with the, ambitious people in life, whether it's to become an emperor or a king or a tech mogul or a famous author or a Twitter influencer star, it's all the same impulse. If I can become so memorable and so important, maybe I will defeat the idea of my own annihilation, of my own inevitable death. I'm going to live on forever. We're back in the Ozymandias psychosis. And I get it. But I think that, that this moment with Alice is so tender and real because every child at one point or another, and maybe several points, runs up against this idea of, wait a second, I'm in this thing called life, and you're telling me that it's just going to end, and everybody that I won't be able to hug anybody, and I certainly won't have my family, like I'm going to suffer that grade of loss. I don't think there's a way to respond to that that doesn't feel like a failure, because the system is 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 awful. They, they, they give you this miraculous life, and then, you know, but it's, it's ephemeral. It's not going to last forever. Like, nobody has the right answer for that. I think when you're in that situation and you have kids and, you know, if you're engaging as a parent 
with some sincerity and some effort, you probably have these answers sort of cooking in the back of your brain for the moment when the question pops. Yeah. And that's, I think there's something kind of like funny and a little heartbreaking about it because I was like, okay, so what will I tell my daughter or my kids when they ask me these tough existential things? Okay, so I'm going to just have this lined up and then it happens right. and you kind of hear it come out of your mouth. And when it fails, you're like, fuck, I failed too. You know, it's, it's yeah. humbling is the point. Right. That's it. Yeah. Cause you're like, I got my cloud thing. And I was like, really like, I was just, you know, just as a fellow parent, like, wow, how well, elegant. Well, yeah, no, I was, cloud. and I should say too, you know, I'm kind of like, I'm repurposing like a lot of the Buddhist literature that I read as a, uh, you know, it's, it's just been a comfort to me like that to me, like as a guy who, for whatever reason, likes the idea of having a map, like I, like I will often joke, like, just because you're Catholic, man, you need a map. Yeah. It's like, give me the you, instructions. You might not accept the map they give you, but you're like, okay, a map. I need a map. <laughs> yeah. Where are the instructions for life? Like, like that, they, they should come with instructions, you know, life when you're born, you should just get a, like a packet and, uh, Buddhism for me, not Buddhist mysticism, not the mythology and the, but just like the basic, it's kind of like the, like the Eastern version of Western psycho, you know, uh, psychology or Western psychoanalytic, you know, uh, practice or whatever that has made some good sense to me, uh, through the years and has been a pretty elegant map. And I think I was taking some of that without putting a religious label on it and trying to sort of like repurpose it for my daughter. But you know, there's a reason why I'm not a Zen master. <laughs> but even a Zen master, I mean, let's give you some credit. Like, yeah. I thought that was pretty, I thought it was a pretty elegant way to say it. It's just that what you have to say is completely unacceptable. Yeah. You cannot say to a six-year-old, yeah, yeah, no, actually, we're all going to leave one another. We're, we're going to leave our bodies, and, and I cannot tell you without lying to you that we're going to see each other on the other side. There might not be another side. There's no right answer to that. I, I, I defy the Zen master to like make that okay for a six-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting is that, you know, a lot of kids struggle with anxiety these days. I don't think it's anything uncommon at all, but my daughter, you know, she struggles with anxiety a little bit and it started to manifest after I had that conversation with her, like not immediately after, but just in the years after. And like, I sometimes wonder, I was like, did I give her too much too soon? I mean, I'm sure it wasn't the cause, but you just wonder like, yeah, did I screw something up? You know, and I, yeah. I don't know. You try your best to be honest, but to engage with them where they're at. And it's an imperfect process. Yeah. I, I hope that you're not going to carry that around. That seems like it would be a very self-punishing thing to do, though identify with that. I think when we say, especially as parents, here's the thing, like I'm the cause of it. It's some idea that we had control over it at all. When in fact, there are lots of reasons that your daughter, like my kids, uh, you know, are, are suffering with with mental health issues. And I think as parents, it's both it's weirdly us trying to seize control of uh, things that really actually aren't in our control uh, to sort of say, oh, I think that was the thing that triggered it. And if I couldn't, we were kind of reliving the fantasy if I'd done it differently. But actually, that's I don't think that's the case. You know, I think that's giving us both too little and too much credit at the same time. Well, that's where I get to in the book. I mean, you know, like I'm guilt, you know, you're, you're Jewish, I'm Catholic, so we could spend an hour on this topic alone. Right? Like, <laughs> comes Next like, week. Yeah, it just comes up. The so... guilty party, a new <laughs> But I, uh, you know, with respect to my son's health condition and the disabilities, the miscarriages, my yeah. daughter's anxiety, all the things, you know, that come at us in yeah. life, it's very easy to wonder how to assign blame. 
And where I came to in my life, in my reading, and, and ultimately in my writing is that blame is a lazy game. And the reason it's lazy is because it discounts the, it inherently sim, like oversimplifies and it discounts all, all the uh, almost infinite different factors that can influence and affect whatever outcome you might be fixated on. Like if you punch somebody in the nose unprovoked, then yes, you know, like you're to blame. And I don't know, I can, I can understand simpler examples where it's a more direct guilt situation. But if you're looking at complex life situations and outcomes yeah. and interpersonal stuff and health related stuff and wondering like, how, am I the one, you know, I feel like that's lazy minded, you know, like certainly I am part of the, the problem in uh, some respect. It's not that you completely absolve yourself but I think where I've landed is that like you have to sort of bow a little bit before the the great complexity and the unknowability uh, yep. of phenomena. You know, to think that I have it completely by the collar is a little bit of hubris. You know, yeah, yeah. I am I am called to articulate my confusion again and again. The 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 book is sort of slamming you're slamming up against and sharing with us those small moments where you're slamming up against unknowability, inscrutability, what the old time, what the old time Jews, the Altecockers would call the ineffable. Right. They had this view of God as like the unknowable. Right. Yeah. Everything. And, and in fact, it was his retreat uh, from the universe that created the possibility of life and the earth. And, you know, it all fell from the sky. It's like such an interesting model. Uh, it's not, you know, this creative, there he was hovering above him again, of course, he, uh, you know, making the deer and the antelope run and whatever else. It's this idea of like, the, actually, you can't, we, we, it, God is that thing that's unknowable and he retreated from us and we can't reach him or utter his name even. And that's what brought our existence and brought about our existence it was essentially kind of the, the aftermath, the comet's tale from confusion, bewilderment, unknowability. It's like, all right, great. So you explained that, you know, explained death to your kid. Good luck with that. <laughs> hey, I like, <laughs> I, I got to say, I'm on board with the Jewish uh, take of inevitability more than I am with anything I was raised with. And, you know, I think you, you, you sort of spoke to this, but it's something that makes a lot of sense to me is that if, you know, whatever this word God is, it's become so problematic. I think that, uh, I think that where I'm at in the book and in life is just to sort of bow before the mystery. We're in a deep mystery. Yeah. And it's well, okay. One of the things, yeah. I mean, it's okay. And also, uh, Sometimes it really sucks. One thing you write about really unflinchingly, and this is something I want to ask about in terms of the decision, like how you write about it, but also the decision to write about it. There, you make allusion to having your, you know, Franny having these miscarriages, and then you write about one of them. And I just, if it's all right, want to read a little passage because it's fucking real. I then returned to the bathroom, opened the door, and went inside. The floor was covered in wide smears of blood. Franny was on her knees by the toilet. Her crying was primal. I crouched down to hug her and she sobbed into my shoulder and there was a feverish heat coming off of her body as she shook, a feverish heat coming off her body. I kissed her on the cheek and caught one of her teardrops in my mouth and tasting its saltiness, told her how sorry I was. I only read that to like suggest to people listening, like you're not, you're gonna take us to the moment. And I, I'm curious, how you feel about that, how you feel about that level of exposure. 
I've been always, you know, running around for years saying, hey, you know, truth is the arrow and mercy is the bow and you got to, you know, shoot as far into the truth as you can. And but there's so much exposure involved. And I wonder how you feel about this, how Franny feels about this, how you give yourself the, the creative and maybe even the moral space to, to write a, about an intimate, painful event like that, how that checks out with Franny and she understands that. Like what's what's happening there? Well, I should say my wife and kids in the book, uh, that's not their real names. I've, you know, your, you, your name isn't even Brad Listy. That's, that's the magic of all this is well, that you're working under a pseudonym for all these years simply to be able to write this book. <laughs> right. And that nobody knows. Nobody knows. My name is not actually Brad Listy. <laughs> that moment of bewilderment. Like, Holy shit. But no, I, you know, it's actually Steve. I should, I can attribute some of this to you. I think there's Uh-oh. something you've said in your your teaching life and in you know conversations maybe even that we've had in the past, and it's this mantra to slow down where it hurts. Yeah. And you know, this is a book that like uh, uh, the way that I sometimes talk about it, as I say, like it was a clearing of the decks. You know, I think sometimes yeah. writers have books like this in their life where there's just stuff that you cannot avoid. And and trust me, I tried to avoid it. I would have loved to have written something so far afield from all this. But every time I sat down, I was just like, uh, it was just kind of staring at me. It would not yeah. leave me alone. And I had to get this one out of me. I had to reckon with this stuff because uh, it was so personally difficult and confusing and just there, I don't know how else to put it. And I think it's a relatable thing. You know, I think obviously writers differ in terms of their approach. Like somebody might write a more fictionalized book that takes these things on at different angles. But for me, it was almost like the challenge of it was to look at it squarely yeah, and to slow down where it hurts. And I think if I have an answer for you, it's that, you know, it's that I had this monolithic sort of like roadblock in front of me creatively. This wasn't going to move. Yeah. I had to deal with it. And once you accept that, what choice do you have? Right. I couldn't begin the book the way that I do and lay it out and let you know yeah. that this is what I'm up against and then not slow down in the hardest parts. And that was a huge challenge. It is not pleasant to write, I gotta say. You know, maybe there's something a little bit cathartic or satisfying about just being like, yeah, okay. I, I portrayed it in a way that is not just like deeply truthful, you know, in a way that satisfies me, but also that is palatable to a reader. Cause that's a, another big part of the challenge. You can't just barf up all your pain on the right. page and then go here, you know? And trust me, I tried it. I tried that too. <laughs> and those right. were some of the earlier failed, you know, iterations of the book where maybe there was too much sharing or not enough art and craft, you know? Right. It was too much like emotional truth and not enough like judiciousness, you know? Or, or, or yeah, too much, too much reaction and recollection and not enough reflection. Yeah. What, what, I, what I love about the way that you're writing about very frightening, upsetting situations is that you don't, you know, you don't take us through every miscarriage. You just take us to a particular moment and say, this is what it felt like. I, I can't, I can't be honest with you. We can't have this conversation unless I can tell you what it felt like to taste my wife's tears and know that there's nothing I could do uh, really to make it better. It's just in this, in a sense, like the conversation with Alice. Um, and, uh, and actually also uh, I'm thinking about the moment that you receive the news about your son Oscars. You don't receive the exact news. You're, you're stuck in this state of not knowing 
fittingly enough, but you know something bad is going to happen. You know that they're telling you something that's going to change the trajectory of your son's life and of your life. And and that too, I want to read just because I think you you somehow are able to tell us what we need to hear, what you needed to say, but not drown us in the, the, the pathos or the trauma of it. Just make us feel it. Why don't you tell me right now, I said, you're trying to get the results of some testing from from a good respectable you know hospitals nobody's a bad actor here but they have bad news like you and alice why don't you tell me right now i said she wouldn't tell me i think you should tell me now i said she wouldn't tell me i lost my shit i remember i think i can remember i love that moment brad because i always trust somebody more when they say i don't know this is just how i remember it this is how my memory has created it being, I, I think I can remember being in my bedroom, standing by the screen door that opened out onto the deck. It was always too dark in that room, but the lawn outside was bright. This is what I mean about slowing down. It's just like a master class because what happens is you just cling on to where your attention went. And it's always going in the direction of what you're of what you're struggling through. It was always too dark in that room, but the lawn outside was bright. I seem to recall dropping into a crouch, barking into the receiver, demanding that this woman tell me what the fuck was going on with my son. But of course, she wouldn't tell me. Hospital policy, this isn't something we can do over the phone, sir. My face flushed red with anger, a surge of terrible fear in my chest, a tangerine tree outside bearing fruit, possibly a hummingbird. These are great lines. I love where your where your attention is. It's, it's not simple. It's not here's the trauma. It's also there's a fucking hummingbird and everything that a hummingbird is. It's 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 desperately alive and its heart is racing 160 beats and its wings are going and it's beautiful, but it's also just the most fragile thing. And it's like your mind darting around. This I like to tell myself was when everything suddenly shifted. I like to tell myself humility was when everything suddenly shifted when the creeping dread that had been plaguing me for weeks finally brought me to the point of overwhelm just as the diagnostic process reached its miserable crescendo. I have also sometimes told myself over the years that this was the precise moment when my excessively long childhood reached its conclusion, the brief hard flash in time when at long last I finished growing up and instead just started aging. And that's, I mean, I read that a couple of times the first time through i probably might have reread it as well and each time i thought wow to struggle with a child who's worried is one thing uh, to struggle with another adult a partner who you love who who, who loses a child or is in, you know is is frightened or upset or unwell but to have a kid have a child who's medically not well and know that it's serious and it's permanent and 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 they're going to have to struggle with it was um, I have I, I have not faced anything like that, but I feel like in reading this passage, that's that's where my mind would go if I could if I could properly reconstruct it. I mean, it took me a while. You know, those are some really raw moments, and like there's like deep instinct. You know, there was a lot of deep instinct involved. That kind of knowing something's wrong, even though you haven't been told in so many words officially. Yep. Those animal reactions when somebody won't tell you the news even though and you know what's coming and they won't tell you like i just did not handle that well so my apologies to that receptionist i always feel bad about the way that i treated her but i, I hope it was humanly understandable you know and considering what was about to unfold for us and it's just really difficult and and coming on the heels of five miscarriages and the loss of my best friend i mean there's a, a lot happening yeah during the writing of this book <laughs> 
Um, and it felt, it feels like taking punches, you know, if that's the uh, analogy to use and you're like, okay, this is the last one. Okay. This is the last one. And really it's like the biggest one. I mean, I guess it's waiting for us all in some sense, but it's just like, whew, there was just not a lot of mercy, you know, and I was sort yeah. of, you're sort of begging for it. And then you get hit with a big punch like that. And it, uh, it's destabilizing. You really do, you know, you see stars for a while and you just try to find which, which way is up. And I think as a concerned, you know, a, a parent who wants to, to do parenthood reasonably well, as most parents do, yep. you know, when you get into situations like this, you don't lose sight of the fact that you're at the helm of the ship, right? Your little ship of, of home and family. And, yeah. you know, you don't have the luxury of losing it. You know, I mean, you can lose it a little bit, but it's like, no, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to keep it together and yeah. I've got to make sure that I am there for them in a way that's authentic. And, you know, it's a tall order. I'm still working it out. I'll be working it out for the rest of my life and I don't always succeed at it, but it, uh, it's what happened. And you know what, in the scheme of, of things, uh, as a human being, you know, it's not the worst that could happen. I mean, there's so people who deal with things like exponentially worse. Like think of people in Ukraine right now, you know, Right. Not, not that we, you know, I've fallen into this trap too, where you sometimes start to grade your suffering or whatever and hand out medals. And that's not the answer either. It's all relative. And even somebody who's like living the most uh, privileged life imaginable is suffering terribly. <laughs> so we all have stuff and I've tried to keep that in mind too, but we certainly got hit with a lot. I don't know exactly why. It's especially difficult when you know that your child is bearing the brunt of something, you know, like this yeah. is like like he's the one who's going to have to deal with the hardship far more than I ever am. You know, like it's his life and these things are going to affect it. And I've got to, as his father, try to help him, like I say in the book, learn from it somehow. It, it boxes you in. What are you supposed to do with that? You know, you can't surrender. You can't be furious for the rest of your life in some sort of overt way. That's only going to poison the well for you. And so you have to find a way to learn from it and embrace it and accept its embrace, I think is what I say, or something to that effect. And it's a day-to-day -day thing. You know, it's a day-to-day -day thing. I, I was, I was thinking about that passage. I was thinking about the, the, the conversation that you, that you have with our mutual friend, Matthew Zapruder and c kind of wondering along with alongside you know, how, how does my wife respond to this? What were the decisions you made around disclosure when it came to your kids who understand what you do to some extent, but this is such a searingly honest portrayal of kind of almost like you were saying, what's behind the curtain of fatherhood or parenthood, where there's this inward set of rage and panic and worry that you're desperately in confusion, that you're often trying to front about as a parent. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just think my instinct is to be truthful and to like, you know, as I, I think I say in the psychedelic section of the book, like jump into the monster's mouths. I, I think I'm also kind of a fatalist uh, or I, I guess that might be the right word. Like, I think like I'm always seeing things through the lens of mortality and time running out. Yeah. Like, what does it matter ultimately? Like, say what, say the truth. 
I'm not coming from a bad place and I'm not trying to exploit anybody. I'm trying to deal with the reality that I'm living through as an artist. And Frank, you know, fortunately I'm in uh, a relationship with my wife and, and hopefully with my kids where they are understanding of that. It's maybe not always easy. I don't know if my wife is going to spend time like relishing the miscarriage yeah. chapter, you know, like I think right. I've told them, you know, I've said, and I've also said to her, you know, you don't, you don't have to read it. It doesn't, it's not, I mean, it's not important to me, like for you to, to read the book if you would rather not. I mean, I kind of give permission that way. I'm not handing the book to my 11 year old and saying, open this, like it's going to have to come later unless she sneaks it. Yeah. Um, she's a pretty precocious kid, but like, I think ultimately where I land is that I'm trying to be honest and I'm coming from a sincere and, you know, heartfelt place. I don't know how well the book succeeds at every turn. You know, you do the best you can. I, I know I've had this experience with everything I've ever written where some days I reread it and I'm like, oh yeah, I like it. And then other days <laughs> I, I reread it and I'm like, oh, you know, like, and so, you know, I'm, I've had every kind of feeling about the different sections of this book and I can diagnose it, you know, at length if, if you really wanted to get into that tedium. But no, you know. we don't have to. I, I don't feel the same way. I think you've made, um, I mean, it's a, it, what, it's a remarkably efficient is 200 and you know 17 pages something like that and uh i think again just i'm biased because i really enjoyed it but i really also you know i'm a pretty restless reader if i if something doesn't grab me i won't go with it and I, even if i have to read it uh you know I, I'm, I'm not gonna want to reread it and this one i've read a couple of times and it probably reread it or sections of it when I feel like it's needed. It's a little bit of a manual for living in terms of dealing with certain kinds of experiences, parental doubt, which we've been talking about, but also, Hey, what am I up to here? And kind of, can I have a reminder of what I'm supposed to be paying attention to? Cause I, I sometimes lose sight of it, but I think you've made, you know, very efficient choices. It's interesting that you set out that litany of other things that the book could have been uh, or that you tried previously. And it feels to me like, again, you just ran through uh, approaches that weren't getting to the truth quick enough and then said, actually, just the, my last option here that yeah. I haven't tried to just get to the truth as quickly as I can and not wallow in it, but make sure that the things that have been that, that you were not going to get rid of by any other means, that, you know, that you had to travel through them. And it, it's fascinating. You mentioned the the drug trip at the end, and it was such an unexpected twist. There's this kind of boondoggle project going off to, to Israel to try to find clarity with the project. And I love that you, even in that, are like, it was just a failure. I didn't know what I was doing. So much of our failures or confusions just get hidden from view, especially in the, let me present this version of myself as this person who's figured it all out. You're so upfront about like, ah, oh, I just, just tried this thing. and It was an utter failure <laughs> and it did not work at all right and then and then and then you go sailing it to the arms of, of psilocybin and there's almost a a kind of hippie-ish and and i think the hippies were right and i think our problem is that we that, that we turned them into a gap ad like they were fucking right about every fucking part of it there's almost a guilelessness or an innocence to saying you know what i'm confused about these big things and, and I, I need to go to another state of consciousness as cultures have been doing throughout fucking human history in order to try to find out, to jump into the mouth of the monster. And you have this intense, profound experience. Can you just like 
just talk a little bit about the trip and how you kind of even engineered that in your life? I had been reading just as a curiosity about psychedelics for a long time prior to... <laughs> I love that line. It's like something out of a deposition. Yeah. <laughs> I've been reading for many, for a long time, material about psychedelics just I mean, out of curiosity. Really? Well, I mean, okay, but the curiosity... Did there come a day, Mr. Liskey, <laughs> when you ingested 7.5 milligrams of mushrooms? Okay. I mean, listen, you, you talk about the hippies. I, it was music to my ears for you to sing their praises because I hate how denigrated they often are in our culture and caricatured. When the general instincts of hippiedom, you know, especially in their, I think, purest state, is dead on, you know, ecologically socially and otherwise just you know the way that we're supposed to be in the world like i'm not saying they got it like to the letter right but applause for their instincts and yeah and I, yeah absolutely i was i you know i spent a little time on a commune and the only problem with with hippiedom is like they did need a little bit more who's going to do what let's right. have a chore, let's have a chore chart <laughs> it was it was you know that that the, the openness and freeness of it was great and liberating, but they did need a little bit of, like they needed a chore chart. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, you know, just as like a brief background, I'm a Midwestern kid, you know, in terms of where I was raised. I was a deadhead and still am. And I think they get unfairly caricatured. I understand not everybody likes the sound of the music, but like as a cultural enterprise and as a creative and artistic enterprise, I would go to the mat for them for eternity as having created something truly interesting and significant you know, on and on. I was very deeply affected by that because when they came to town when I was 16 or 17 years old, I had never seen anything like that. Like yeah. you're, you're from the Bay Area. You probably grew up surrounded by those people. For me, oh, it was, yeah. for me, it was like, it was, it was a complete revelation. And the parking lot scene, in hindsight, it was kind of chaotic, but I was, right. hung, I was hungry for that. And then- I need a miracle. <laughs> I need a miracle. <laughs> and then I went off to Boulder for college so again, I was in like a hippie situation and had psychedelic experiences that were ungrounded, meaning I didn't understand anything about the origin of these compounds and how they've been used throughout human history, ceremonially, spiritually, right. psychologically. I knew nothing about, I had no grounding at all. It was party stuff and it was right. haphazard. Fortunately, I was taking what I now understand to be relatively low doses, certainly enough. I mean, I, I, I say that and I had some pretty powerful experiences, but I never had a bad time. In fact, they're some of the most powerful experiences of my life. They really formed me in a lot of ways. And I didn't have a way of defining them. I, I understood this power sort of intuitively in a remembered way, but many, many years went by b before I did them again. And all the while I had been reading and then kind of reflecting and, and as I read and took in like work by Terrence McKenna and Michael Pollan and Tao Lin's book and uh, a book by Daniel Pinchbeck and all these documentaries, like I really got into reading about it and wondering about what the fuck was that? And then as you do this, it becomes, you know, like anything you read about at length, you're going to become more and more deeply fascinated with it. But it also contextualized it for me and grounded it for me and gave me a much healthier respect than I probably had at age 19 or whatever. Right. And I started to read about Johns Hopkins, which is, you know, the one of the only, if not the only, at least for a time, universities in the country that had the legal permission to study these things and their therapeutic benefits, which 
you know, nowadays, you know, the last decade, especially things have really tipped and you're seeing a lot of research being done around PTSD and grief and trauma and how, and, and also addiction, you know, people who are opiate or heroin addicted or whatever can have some pretty remarkable outcomes. Veterans of war theaters, you know, have had pretty remarkable outcomes, not only with psilocybin, but with MDMA in a structured setting off, you know, with a therapist and that kind of thing. And so you're reading this stuff too, and you're going, wow. You know, so I just got curious and I got this kind of revisionist impulse to be like, you know what, I need a (laughs) do-over. There's something here, and I know there's something here from experience, but it's been a while and I did it sloppy or sloppily back in the day. And so I just kind of, again, Mr. Rule Follower here, I I wanted a map and I, I took that map And then I also, and I have to put an asterisk next to this because it's very important that I not glamorize this or like sound like I'm advocating for it, but I took a very high dose, um, which- That is clear from the book. Yeah, yeah, but but, but it's also, you know, if you listen to like Terrence McKenna, he's always saying like, you're not taking enough. And it can seem, it can seem crazy to hear because like you can take a little bit and have quite an experience. And you go, wait, I didn't take enough. Like I, I you know, I turned into a unicorn, Terrence. You know, like, <laughs> you know, but I mean, in terms of the, uh, the complexity and like really kind of getting, I guess the full ride or whatever, you know, I just went for it. And yeah, you uh, did. And it was extraordinary. Yeah. Well, I, I don't, I feel like it would be a real spoiler alert to like read a long, beautiful passage of this crazy it just as you refer to it i love that this is maybe this will serve its purpose there's just a a, a sentence that you write after uh, a a kind of um it a culminating point a kind of climax of this psychedelic experience which i will say that oprah winfrey unexpectedly and, <laughs> and quite bewilderingly appears and you just say and maybe this this will help You just say, and here, I must make an obligatory acknowledgement of how utterly batshit insane this all sounds. (laughs) I mean, that's the thing is when I reached that, I was like, okay, I'm so reassured by this, that the narrator once again is being straight with me because you do an incredible job of trying to take us inside the experience of a mind that is so altered from our general understanding of consciousness just things are happening in your body and mind that are so intense and unexpected and seemingly chaotic but also incredibly meaningful to you 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 write at one point i wept like it was my job and i just thought well you know this guy is it has all these things to weep but we we've read about all of these moments where he reacts with anger or sympathy but actually it's just grief i can't say what I need to say to reassure my daughter about death. I can't do anything more than try to be a comfort to my wife suffering this loss, which is also my loss, but in her, you know, and suffering it bodily. Uh, I, you know, I, I cannot and will never be able to. It is insoluble, the, the, the struggle that my son is going to have and that I'm going to try to help him with, but that we're both going to have to carry because of just dumb luck, bad fortune. And I felt like in a weird way, it was cathartic as strange as it goes where it ends is in in this kind of what I thought of as kind of this aria of vulnerability 
where the trip is not, you know, some frivolous party thing. It's just the opposite. It is an exercise in trying to find clarity, the extraordinary, astonishing sorrow of the examined life. It's just uh, it's just an amazing and unexpected way to end the book. Yeah, I mean, I didn't I mean, you know, I think I kind of figured it out. It came late and it took the experience itself to sort of put the light bulb on. But with psychedelics, what I've read in many different places from many different people, and I think it's definitely true, is that, you know, it's definitely going to be unexpected. <laughs> you know, whatever you think is going to happen, you know, you might see some like uh, some corollaries, but you're going to be surprised. But ultimately, psychedelics give you what you need. It's like uh, you'll hear stories of people who have these just terrifying, awful trips. Yeah. And this happens sometimes in therapeutic contexts. You know, like right. you'll have these Johns Hopkins people who will have somebody in the little, you know, faux living room on the couch with the sleep mask on, and they will really be facing stuff and they will really be not having a great time. Yep. But what happens reliably, I, I shouldn't say maybe always, but reliably after the fact, even after really difficult, dark, scary trips, yeah. is that people will say, yeah, that was actually net positive. Right. Because it's in there. It's all in there looking for a way out. Right. And and I can see that. that it's like, okay, I mean, I, I have not done a, a lot of psychedelics, but in reading about this trip, I had that moment that maybe other people are saying, God, we're carrying a lot of confusion and doubt and pain and upset and fear. And, uh, you know, and wouldn't it be difficult and weird and intense, but ultimately therapeutic to have a kind of portal opened where that where that suddenly comes flooding into our consciousness, overwhelming, but just purgative to cleansing. be able to say, yeah, cleansing, right. I mean, and 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 colonic for the soul, <laughs> truly. And uh, what's funny to me is how surprising it was. Yeah. Like, of course, I was. You know, I mean, like, it's like I say. I think I say something to this effect, where it's like, uh, you know, everybody's sad. I knew I was sad, but like, until you really feel it in an embodied way, you don't realize how much you're carrying around. And that's just, and that's not just me. That's all of us, right. for whatever set of reasons, you know, and. I don't know. I, I guess some people have greater and lesser access to their emotional selves. You know, I, I think as a guy, especially, <laughs> I'm pretty good. Like, I've never had people be like, wow, Brad, you're really closed off and you can't speak about your insides. Like, that's not right. me. I mean, it's not you either. Yeah. Uh, no, but... everybody's like, yeah, stop speaking about your insides. <laughs> right. Enough about your insides. Right, right. But even so, like this level of authentic sadness and that physical expression of it for hours yeah in a way that did not feel melodramatic yeah no it's pure you're it just was wailing pure it was it, so yeah. pure and so and it surprised me it surprised still kind of surprises me but i guess it's what i needed yeah well i i mean i just i'm gonna read a little bit not not a lot just a little bit because i love that you talk about you know to be alive in the world that was so often so mean and so dumb and so breathtakingly gorgeous I love that you included that. And I know that we've kind of focused on the heavy stuff, but there are these moments of, of incredible joy and beauty. You know, they have to live alongside the, the other moments of, of terror and confusion. I would strip myself down and take myself apart and give myself away piece by piece, articulating my confusion, doing my job, losing. And before too long, I would lose it all. The earth was passing before me. The ice cops were on fire. Here we were. My children would soon be grown. They would head out into the world and would suffer their various wounds, creating their their lives 
on their own terms, making themselves up, just as I was making myself up one moment at a time. And that's, you know, again, that felt like I love that the book is talking about how it's made. And, and, you know, those those little moments, it's made up of those little kind of incandescent moments. And, you know, it just it helped me realize that there is a model for kind of self-awareness and self-reflection that doesn't feel indulgent for a moment that really invites the the reader to kind of I haven't done psychedelics. I, I've I've dodged some of the bullets that hit you straight on. But I had that feeling of like, OK, should those things arise in the moment where moments where I do feel dire, I can I can hang on to this book. I know where the pages are that are dog eared. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I hope that's the, like that's kind of the highest function of a book, right? I mean, is uh, or one of the higher functions. As a reader, I relate to that. You know, like we sort of cling to our favorite books and our favorite passages the way you might cling to a life raft, uh, yeah. if that's not too dramatic. And I think that. There is some part of me that in reckoning with what had gone on in my life thought that by going in there and taking a close and careful look, like really training my attention on it and making myself vulnerable on the page, like hopefully I can bring some relief to the reader, especially if they might be sharing in similar fears or experiences and you know, I'm just imitating what great books have done for me and why, yeah. I, why I've been locked into this for my adult life. Yeah, that's it. And especially because you're, you're speaking openly and writing openly about experiences. I don't just mean having a terrible trip, uh, you know, a, a kind of intense trip where Oprah Winfrey shows up <laughs> in, in kind of erotic setting. That's all. That's just a bonus. <laughs> but seriously, like, you know, suffering miscarriage, having a child who's struggling with real profound health struggles, that's stuff that people hide away and they tough it out and they don't want the world to look upon them with pity and they don't want the world to, you know, start sort of trap them in that identity. I get that. But I, I think for that reason, they need a model. They need somebody, this kind of narrator, a wise, true friend to try to keep them company and assure them that they're not alone in that. There's a way of not conquering it, not understanding it, not making it okay, just being in it. Hmm. And well, so I just, that, that's, that's what I think will be enduring in the book. I, I appreciate hearing that. I think that uh, what it brings to mind for me is the disability community, which I am relatively new to, you know, but in, I'm in it for life with my son. And I think that when you have a child who's disabled, you become acutely aware very quickly of how marginalized disabled people too often are in our culture and how little help and structure there is in our society provided yeah. at the level of healthcare, at the level of state in terms of funding, at the level of education and schooling and the assistance that they need. You are on your own as a disabled mm -hmm. child, as a parent of a disabled child. I mean, I say that and I want to also acknowledge that there are some wonderful saintly human beings who are doing the good work. There just aren't right. enough, you know, relative to the size of the community. And it's just too easy for people to overlook the needs and vulnerabilities of disabled people. I think of the pandemic in particular. I mean, this to me, this is the the and, and we can't we, we got it. We got to put this one in the trenches. But to me, this is the most unchristian. The, the most direct repudiation of the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, right, of this idea, this beautiful dream of a gospel of 
of love as a revolutionary force. Like your job, Christ just walked around ministering to the sick and the iniquitous. That was the whole gig. And the poverty of our, our culture, uh, and, and it has a link, I think, to what we've been talking about in terms of social media and the need for acclaim and so forth. It's like we just want to annihilate doubt and weakness. And anybody who, who, who carries that through life or reminds us of that too profoundly, we want to erase that experience. So we're not going to talk about miscarriages or we're not going to talk about what it is like or even want to think about what it would be like to have to travel through uh, life with you know serious medical disabilities or if we're going to think about it We're going to think about it as something that doesn't involve us. Mm. And I just think that's you know Ultimately th that is your mind on the great steroid of capitalism uh, You know, it, it's just meant to sort of annihilate doubt and, and the annihilate weakness or it doesn't annihilate those things It just is an effort to put a giant scrim between us and that set of experiences but there are people who are living on the other side of that. And I think what this book does is, is just pull back the curtain on so many things, but that in particular, and, you know, f not force the reader, but just actually involve the reader in a way that, that they can't turn away from. Uh, and, and I don't think, you know, for me anyway, I didn't sit there and read that litany of everything that you'd endured and that I was going to read about it and say, Oh no, I don't want to read about that. I thought, thank God. I'm not going to have to hear an inspirational dot, dot, dot. I'm so uninterested in those stories. I have nothing to, there's nothing for me to cling on to because I think actually people are quite broken and lonely and heart sick. Uh, and what they need is to know, yeah, that there's somebody else who feels that way and who's living through some kind of struggle. And I, I don't want to hear that they got over and it was all okay. I do want to see them in the struggle to live with it, but I don't want to hear the point of the story isn't that it was all okay, mm. right? You don't know if you're going to see Alice on the other side. That's not the point of the story. No, right? the point is she's in front of you now and you have to, you have to try to connect with her in some way, not to make her feel all right, but to uh, just be in that mystery with her, that painful mystery. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, in earlier drafts of the book or, you know, years ago in the process, I sort of clung to phrases like the way out is in or the way through is through. And I do feel a sense of conviction about this. Like I think that if you're dealing with suffering of whatever kind, you have to go into it. You're not going to be able to ignore it or oppress it or bury it under, you know, whatever like emotional layers you might fix for yourself. You can't dive bomb into your phone to get away from it. It's going to, it's going to be there. And I learned that, I guess, the hard way. And I think that this book is maybe about a person who is caught up in so much difficulty that it's just impossible to avoid. You know, this does happen to human beings in life. And there are situations, right. you know, it doesn't have to be even a volume situation where there's like multiple things happening. It could just be like, wow, I just lost somebody really close to me. Right. And in that period, it's just life changes and things get drawn into high relief suddenly and you can feel it. And uh, sometimes it can bring some real like clarity. That's like kind of an odd comfort considering the difficulty of the moment. But uh, this is a book, if nothing else, about, you know, the way through is through. And it was me trying to honestly and deeply reckon with this and then put it on the page, hopefully, <laughs> with some artistry and some craft so that somebody who doesn't share in these experiences, a casual reader could pick it up 
and find a line of human connection. And I don't know, like you say, have it be there as a kind of life raft if necessary. Yeah. Yeah, and also just do a shit ton of of, of psychedelics because <laughs> because Brad Listy told you to. No, like, that's, really, that's the only reason, <laughs> and there's no real moral indemnity. Just do a shit ton of mushrooms. Oprah will come to you. You will weep for hours on end. You will have that colonic for the soul. That's literally a trademark phrase. If you go to colonicforthesoul.com. I actually own that. I own website. the domain. I just bought the domain. Is. That's the whole thing. It's like the Alex Jones of the enlightened world. <laughs> I should say to anybody listening, consult your doctor, do deep reading. Be and then fit- just do a shit ton of <laughs> That's really what Brad's saying, okay? <laughs> yeah, so on that note, Steve, thank you so much both for the careful read and for the kind words and for taking the time to sit in my chair. Look at the guy. You now, you just see what you just did? Uh, that you I just, just, you just, you did a host term. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're I'm just sorry. like, I want to just thank you for being I the, do, though. the host on the podcast. <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. I'm just going to go off and do a shit ton of mushrooms and make some terrible decisions just behind the wheel of a vehicle. That's all right. Hey, give my regards to Oprah. Give my regards to Oprah. I will. I will give. She's probably still tired out from your <laughs> promenade. I do. But uh, no, listen, I want to thank you for the book and for the experience of reading and then being able to talk about it. It's such a joy. You, you, you know, you spent years with this thing and it was a pleasure just to keep the seat warm just for one week. So when you go, when you return to the host chair, you'll feel there's just a little almond warmth there. <laughs> I can't wait. Okay. We had to put it in the ditches. Parting is such sweet sorrow, but it has to happen even in other people podcast land. Remember, that was Brad Listy, the author of the brilliant novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. And I want you to know that you can find anything you might want to know about Brad Listy, about where he's going to be reading, about how you can pick up his book at bradlisty.com. And it also might be important for you, or it might be something that is of interest to you to actually check brad out on twitter or the podcast anyway at other ppl that's on twitter and also at other ppl dot podcast on instagram i really urge you to do this because brad is going to be doing events for instance you might want to pick his book up at a particular venue hopefully an independent bookstore but you could also order it online and you can get it from any place you want but the best place to get that info in one quick burst is bradlisty.com I am also super psyched that we are going to be touring. I think we'll be waving to one another, perhaps from airplanes or knowing our budgets, maybe from Greyhound buses. So I will let you know that my name is Steve Almond. I was weirdly the guest last week. Brad and I just can't quit each other. It's like that with us. Uh, I have a new novel out called All the Secrets of the World, and you will find out if you choose to where I'm touring at stevealmondjoy.org. I'm an org, not a com. Don't judge me. But it's stevealmondjoy.org, and it's all lowercase, interestingly, self-deprecatingly, Judaically. And the thing I want to emphasize is that it's been a long effing pandemic, and we have forgotten how to be human. And Brad and this brilliant novel, and me in my own way with my novel, we're trying to be human. And even on this podcast, and it's, it's wonderful to have the intimate experience of being in your ear. But I would actually like to see eye to eye with you. I'd like to be in a room with you if possible. I know Brad feels the same way, so please... Go to bradlisty.com and find out if he's going to be in your area, especially if you're a longtime listener. He's startlingly attractive. I mean, the, the voice just doesn't even get close to it. He's my safe crush, and, and it's not always safe. Let's just be, be honest about that. I am slightly disappointing in person, frankly, 
uh, just anguished and Judaic, but very earnest and, uh, and, and a read uh, at, at least a 12th grade level. So I hope you'll check out steveonjoy.org and see if I'm coming to a city near you. And if I know who you are and you don't show up at a reading, you just expect a big fat guilt trip. That's just how I roll. But the brilliant thing about all of this is that there is an opportunity for us to spend time in person after a long time in the wasteland, as James McMurtry puts it. It's been a long pandemic and it's time for us to see one another in real life like real human beings. I can't wait for that and I can't wait to listen to this conversation with Brad. 